Hello, NAFI members and flight instructors. This is John Niehaus, Director of Program Development for the National Association of Flight Instructors. As always, I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of the NAFI More Right Rudder Podcast, the podcast for flight instructors on the go. And today, um, I would like to uh, bring us back to AirVenture of 2022, so just a couple months ago, and uh, continue on our AirVenture Professional Development Center series. Um, now, if you're not familiar, and we've released a few of these so far already, but uh, we had over 30, I think it was 32 presentations in the Professional Development Center tent at AirVenture, and these were presented by some of the most amazing individuals, instructors, NAFI members, professionals, um, business owners, industry leaders um, that you could possibly imagine. And they presented some really, really great information and uh, courses. And so we thought that we would record them and then release them in various media outlets so that uh, even if you couldn't make the show, you could feel like you were a part of the Professional Development Center. And so um, every so often we're releasing the videos on YouTube. So if you want to go watch these, you can go to our YouTube channel or you can uh, just wait for them to come out in podcast form so you can listen to them on the way to the airport. And um, the cool thing is, is that the Professional Development Center is kind of the live and in-person arm to the professional development program. And uh, that is something that you can go to the NAFI website, nafinet.org, and uh, take any of the 30 courses available um, and start uh, working your way through and earning the uh, certificate of completion for the PDP, which is uh, kind of a big deal in the instructional industry. So if uh, you're interested in that, we'd love to have you as a member of NAFI. And uh, all you got to do is go to nafinet.org and uh, sign up that way, and you'll get uh, access to the PDP. You'll get access to our membership discounts. Remember that uh, things like ForeFlight, you'll get 33% off of ForeFlight um, membership or subscription. You'll even get uh, um, discounts to ASA, Sporties, Gleam, uh, or Glime, and uh, so many others. And um, the course that we're going to talk about today is Higher and Faster. High Performance and Complex Airplanes, presented by Philip Mandel. Now, um, this is a great course. I think a lot of people don't truly understand some of the, uh, the, the trials and tribulations of going into these higher, faster, more complex airplanes, and uh, Phil does an amazing job of uh, sort of boiling down the basics. Um, he has been a fast team rep of the year. He's uh, owned some airplanes. He's been an instructor for a long time. Um, and uh, he's just a, an all-around amazing presenter. Um, and of course, a NAFI member. So um, the other cool thing is, and we'll call this uh, episode sponsored by Flying Eyes. Now, Phil is a... Um, I don't exactly know what they term it, but he's kind of a uh, uh, a rep for Flying Eyes. Now, if you're not familiar with them, they do aviation sunglasses and some of the most comfortable aviation sunglasses you could possibly find. They're uh, patent-pending sort of skinny bars on the side so that when you wear a headset, it doesn't hurt after a long period of time. And I think any of you instructors out there that have spent uh, hours with multiple students a day can understand what uh, the additional pain is 
can cause from not just wearing a headset all day, but wearing sunglasses underneath that headset. So check out Flying Eyes. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that'll help with Phil. And, and of course, NAFI members get a 10% discount for Flying Eyes. And uh, so check that out, too. If you're not subscribed to this podcast, we are approaching our 51st episode with this one right here. And um, that's super exciting for us. And we've got a big plan for the celebration of the 60th, so keep that in mind. But if you're not already following us on whatever place you listen to this podcast, please, please, please subscribe. And uh, maybe tell your friends. The more subscriptions we get, the uh, the more of these things we can do and the more cool things we can do with it. Um, and uh, at the same time, if you wanted to watch this video on YouTube, subscribe there too. Maybe comment or... Uh, um, leave a review for any of these channels, but uh, I would very much appreciate it. And uh, finally, before we get to the presentation, one of the things I'd like to do on these next uh, couple episodes, if I get enough interaction with all of you, um, is uh, cue you in on sort of the history of NAFI. I, I think that uh, we talk about the organization, we talk about it as the NAFI family, um, and I truly believe that. But I also think that... Uh, um, it, the best way to get you all to understand how close and how important the association is and the members are is to sort of better understand the organization as a whole. So if you have questions, if there are things about the organization that you want to know, um, certainly within reason, so, uh, you know, keep that in mind, but uh, please send me a message at jneehaus, that's J-N-I-E, H-A-U-S at nafinet, N-A-F-I-N-E-T dot O-R-G. And I'd like to take an episode or two and just answer your questions and uh, make sure that you know what the organization's all about and what we do and, and why we do it and why our members are so important, why our members are so amazing and why um, we are able to do the things that we do and, and maybe even... Um, ideas of what you'd like to see us do in the future. So uh, remember, Jay Niehaus at NAFINet.org, and uh, we'll see if we can't put together a cool episode on the sort of history of NAFI and, and all of that. So anyways, without further ado, higher and faster, high-performance and complex aircraft with Philip Mandel. So there I was uh, uh, with a, my recent um, private pilot graduate, and he wants to work on his instrument rating. He became partners in this beautiful Turbo 182. Um, so uh, in a, as a club of 10 or 12 uh, pilots. Uh, so in order to instruct in that, I needed to get a check out by one of their instructors, satisfy insurance and so on. So um, I talked with that instructor, and he told me what we were going to do. And my, a, a little tiny piece of me, the, the ego, said, I don't need all that. I've flown turbos and retracts and all this other stuff. It's like, OK, I'll jump through the hoops uh, just for you, and really just so I could instruct my student and make some money. Uh, and then my super ego, I don't know about this stuff, but took over and said, shut up. You're not that good. <laughs> You're just another instructor. Take the training, maybe you'll learn something. I learned a lot. So, 
That's why when I saw um, somebody post on a Facebook group, my instructor took me up for three takeoffs and landings in my new high performance yada yada, and that was it. So I, I don't know, at least half of you are instructors. What do you think of that? I see a lot of head shakes. That's kind of what I said. So I thought, okay, let's talk about this uh, and try to make a little more sense out of it. Um, I'm from the camp that if we make it easy for the student, we are not doing our job. We need to make them love it and come with us and you know feed them as they're able to chew. But just making it easy for the sake of doing them a favor I'll put it in another way. My primary instructor, whom I wish I could reach today, I can't find him. I would kiss his hands and feet and thank him for what he gave me. He went way beyond what was the PTS at the time, and that saved my life, all the extras that he did. If you come to my Power Loss at 300 Feet seminar on Thursday or watch my mentor live that I did on, uh, in January, I think. Anybody seen that one? Power Loss? Okay, watch it or come to my seminar. You need to see that. Um, so I survived that because of him. There's no question. So challenging them to the extent that they can, uh, can absorb things, I think, is our job. That's just my opinion. So please not. <laughs> just three takeoffs and landings. Interestingly, I had dinner last night. I, I don't know whether to stop when there's noise or not. I'm, I'm half deaf. I can't hear anything anyway. Um, uh, dinner last night with a fella who said uh, he's a pilot and owns a pressurized huff and puff. What's that called? 337 Cessna. Uh, uh, Skymaster, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and his son is also a pilot and was recently checked out in a complex aircraft. So dad was uh, or endorsed for, for complex. And uh, so dad was going flying with the son and just started asking questions because dad is obviously an experienced pilot with a pressurized retract twin. Uh, so he said, how was the checkout? And the son goes, oh, it was easy. And dad said, what would you do? And he said, well, we just did a half an hour in a complex aircraft. I'm ready to cry. So, uh, so let's, let's see if we can uh, really prepare people for every possible contingency, just like we do in primary training, right? You might lose the engine here, you might get lost. All kinds of interesting things might happen. That's our job. Mm. Okay. So first, the regs. Uh, you instructors, I'm sure, all know this. 6131, where you need to do fancy stuff if it's, you're going to get a type rating and so on. Germane to this presentation is the additional training required for operating complex airplanes and ditto for high performance airplanes. And that's the rest of 6131. So uh, let's figure out what high performance and complex means. Believe it or not, the term high performance is not defined, at least not in 61.1, which is just this whole list of definitions. It's simply dis uh, sort of parenthetically defined in uh, in the in the 91 in the regulation that says uh, you know that you need an endorsement, so it says except as provided in paragraph F2, and by the way F2 is the one where you're grandfathered if you had logged pilot and command time before that date. So if you weren't grandfathered in, then you have to uh, you can't act as pilot and command of a high performance airplane. Parentheses 
an airplane with an engine of more than 200 horsepower, or close parentheses, unless that person has received and logged ground and flight training. What kind of training? Ground. Not everybody does ground training, okay? So that, like that half hour thing, I don't think they did any ground. Ground and flight training. I would recommend if you do these checkouts, go in the back of the logbook where there's a place to log ground time. A lot of times we forget to do that. We get busy talking and like, oh, let's go fly, and we just did an hour of ground, but forget to log it. It needs to be logged because you have to satisfy this reg. Um, so ground and flight training and a one-time endorsement. So that's high performance. Complex is defined in 61.1. I don't know why they didn't just put high performance in there as well. Uh, and as you know, the, general, the definition for purpose of this seminar is the fully complex, which is controllable prop, gear that goes up and down, and flaps that go up and down. Uh, so uh, uh, similar language in that part of the regulation, whereas the person may act as pilot in command, unless they're grandfathered in, unless the person has received what kind of training? <laughs> Ground and flight training uh, and a one-time endorsement. So. Here's a question for you. Can you read this from back there? I know there's glare and I don't know if I got the type big enough. Thank you. Okay, so you got a single engine airplane with a Lycoming 0360, 200 horsepower. Is it, com is it high performance? Why not? It has to be 201 horsepower, right? This is, you know, government works by setting a limit and that's you know, like you can't vote till 18 or whatever. Like this, there's gotta be a number. This is how government works. So that's the way it is. So, uh, so you know, if, the, if that high-performance checkout with three takeoffs and landings, if the person had been flying a 200-horsepower airplane and now is flying a 220, maybe that was appropriate. In general, I think our, our little <laughs> head shakes were, were right on, that usually it's going to take a lot more than that. So here's a question. Same situation, same airplane, uh, and that the airplane was, the, the engine was, designed and rated for 200 horsepower, but a dynode at 210. Is that a high-performance airplane? I don't know. I don't know if I would count on it. I don't know if FAA would buy it. I don't know if an insurance company would buy it. I don't know. Be cautious with that. That's all I can say. I don't, I don't know the answer. Check with an aviation attorney called AOPA. I don't know. It's an interesting question, so I'm recommending that don't take that for granted. That's a maybe. Uh, okay, twin-engine Piper Apache, like the one I used to own, total of 320 horsepower. Is it high performance? Not unless one of them was 210 and the other one was like 120, <laughs> the rest of it. Correct, because at least one of them has to be over uh, more than 200. Okay, here's a good one. The airplane is a 220 horsepower. Fixed gear Cessna Cutlass. PIC is under the hood. The safety pilot is appropriately rated, single engine land and current medical and so on, but not endorsed for high performance. Can the safety pilot act as SIC? Correct. And in fact, there's a legal interpretation. If you don't know about the legal interp website, just look up FAA legal interpretations, and there's a box where you can type stuff in, and it'll give you these interpretations. So that's where I found this. The Risner interpretation says, uh, yeah, it's SIC, and the regulation says, thou shalt not act as PIC. 
It doesn't say thou shalt not act as SIC. Good morning. <coughs> um, so it'll look like that. Here's another one. A Seminole, <coughs> pardon me, is upgraded to 220 per side. The instructor is training a private pilot toward their multi-engine rating. Can the instructor endorse the learner for high performance before the pilot has their multi-engine rating? What do you think? Yeah, you're correct. And the legal interpretation on that that I found says yes, according to the Nolan interpretation, you betcha. Now, <clears throat> if you believe any of this, you're crazy. Because I'm not an attorney, I know nothing, everything I just told you is a lie, consult a real attorney, uh, and, and things change, interpretations change, regulations change, so I don't know if that news is still current. At least at one point, that was the case, so be careful with all that stuff. Okay, here's the question, and here's the answer. <laughs> is there any FAA guidance on trans transitioning to unfamiliar and or higher performance aircraft. Of course there is. So there's AC 9109A, transition to old familiar aircraft. There's a bunch about this in the risk management handbook. There's a bunch about it in airplane flying handbook. It has a really nice little uh, chart for uh, as a sample transition training syllabus really for any airplane, but certainly this would apply uh, toward high performance or complex. And uh, it's a little hard to read from where, back where you are, but basically there's three hours of ground and three hours of flight. That sounds like a pretty thorough checkout and endorsement. A lot better than half an hour. Uh, so uh, there's a bunch about it in uh, Aviation Instructor's Handbook and in PHAC. So there's lots of FAA guidance that you can dig into. So, uh, so any comments or questions so far? Back one. Clear for takeoff? Thank you. Okay. All right. So, uh, yeah. Uh, wasn't there a change a while back where complex did not have to be retractable just because there's so few retractable airplanes being built? Uh, the, the original uh, definition of complex, to the best of my recollection, is airplane of more than 200 horsepower or all the complex stuff. In other words, high performance was, or, or the other way around. They were both called high performance. It was all one lumped into one thing. And then the, the uh, preamble that I read recently said uh, FAA realized that, um, that a lot of times those are getting separated. People are putting big engines in, in simple airplanes. So we need to separate that out. So that created high performance and complex as two different endorsements. I don't think complex, I don't know what it used to be, if complex used to be different. Complex has to be retract, yeah. Can somebody log, who doesn't have an endorsement, log piloting command for the purposes like sole manipulative controls of an airplane single engine land? That's a great question. What do you think? Yeah. Go ahead, Brian. Say it again. Can, if there's two private pilots, one has the endorsement, they're taking turns flying, the other private pilot doesn't have the high performance endorsement, can they log it while they're sole manipulator of the controls? Can they log PIC? without an endorsement, no CFI? That's a great question, and I've discussed it at length with one of my Twin Oaks instructors, and we have a conclusion, so what do you think? 
So he's he, so his question was: One guy is PIC. Can the other one log PIC time during the time he's manipulating controls? It, this guy would have to be under the hood or something like that. Because uh, if one's acting as PIC and you're both VFR, one just sole manipulative controls. Sole manipulative. I'm I, my son, private pilot, fly the high performance airplane. I'm right. A private pilot. Can he log the time so he can build time for insurance? Gotcha. I think the answer is yes, because he's not acting as PIC. He's just sole manipulator, and he is rated single-engine land or appropriately rated for the aircraft. Karen, do you have a different opinion? I can't hear you, but it just not if that was good. The whole question. So the question is: two private pilots, and and uh, can the private pilot one has a high-performance sign-off endorsement, the other does not, but he's pilot for airplane single-engine land. Can he log sole manipulator PIC even though he doesn't have the endorsement? Okay, that's right. Okay. I, I've not gotten an answer on that. So, I, so. Okay, thank you. Yeah. My, well, I say yes, only if a second in command is required, which means this one's under the hood. If you're both VFR, there is no SIC. Use the mic, please. Use the mic, please. There's a couple of separate sets of rules you're talking about. How you put something in a logbook right. is different from who's in charge. Correct. Right? Right. And That's my argument. Is that qualifies as a safety pilot rules is a little different, too. The safety pilot's different. Leave that out. But, but he can qualify as a safety pilot, even though he can't qualify to be a pilot on command. Correct. Then he, if he's a required crew member because he's looking for traffic, then he's SIC while this one's under the hood. But can he log PIC time while this one is still acting as PIC? I think the answer is yes. If you believe that, just go out, leave now, and watch the air show, because I'm not an attorney. <laughs> so I think the answer is yes. Check with AOPA. Check with an attorney. That's a very good question, Brian. Question. Um, what about PA-28, let's say, through an arrow? I'm going to go to the speaker so I can hear you. Go ahead, please. Question. I, my question on high performance is a PA-28, let's say it's a turbocharged arrow, Dash 201, is that a high performance? You know, I, I, uh, I, my original complex uh, was in a PA-28R 201. Not, it wasn't turbo. That's not relevant, but it's a good question. Uh, and the fact that it's called 201 may or may not mean it's rated at 201 horsepower. So it depends on if it's a 201 horsepower engine or a 200 horsepower engine that just happens to be marketed as a 201. So to me, it depends on what the engine is rated at, not what the marketing number is for the airplane. So, I, so it depends on the engine rating, not the marketing number. The microphone, Mike, please. Microphone. Talked about the uh, owner's manual. You have to go through that, and then say it'll say 200 horse or 201. Uh, that would be yes. That's what I would do. Yes. Okay. And I think it's 200 horse, and I don't think it qualifies. But that's a very good question. We need to move on. Any other needy comments? I worked for a Piper dealer when Elvis came about, and that's why they re-rated the engine in the POH to a 201 because of this rule. So Piper said, hey, we got to have 201 horsepower. And that's why I trained into a turbo 201. And it all came out. I was flying in 81 as an instructor, and that, yeah. that came up all the time. That's what happened. <laughs> okay. Because all the old arrows were 180 or 200. 
Right. Okay, that's brilliant. B, that means it's high performance. If it, yeah, if it's if the POH, the AFM, whatever it is, says that this the aircraft engine rating 201, as far as I'm concerned, it is. I would call AOPA and ask for the legal interpretation. Don't believe anything I say, but I like it if it's rated at 201. Okay, let's keep. These are great questions. I'll be here afterwards. We can talk all day. Um, okay, what was I going to say? So, uh, Brian, I lost my clicker. Brian. Um, so, uh, when I remember, I said when I was getting checked out in that Turbo 182. Thank you. I just wanted the clicker. I didn't want to go. Thank you very. I got it. Uh, and they, he wanted to do this, this, you know, fairly comprehensive checkout. And once I checked my ego at the door, I loved it. And so here's this whole first page on the left where there's a ground, considerable ground instruction. And the guy really challenged my brain as to like, what if this indication happens? What if that fails? What's an emergency? And what is just like, oh shoot, we're just going to have to get this thing fixed. Uh, and then all these things with regard to flying. So I loved it, and that's this, I'm using that. They're, they're allowing me to use that as a basis for this presentation. So first, the ground stuff. Constant speed prop. We need to learn them the reason for its existence. Why would someone want to go through that much expense, complexity, extra weight, and maintenance headaches? as opposed to a fixed pitch prop. So how would you answer that? What does a, what does a constant speed prop would do for you? Yeah, please use the mic. Pitch prop is a compromise. A constant speed prop allows you to set it for whatever segment of flight you're in. Oh, I didn't catch that. I'm sorry. If you have a fixed pitch prop, that's really a compromise. That's a take off what would be ideal or cruise what would be ideal. Then a constant speed prop yeah, fixed pitch is a is a compromise. So, but tell me specifically what you get for the constant speed aspect of it. We got a mic. You get to choose whether or not you want to have a high performance, best performance out of the aircraft, or you want an economy. And you have a whole range of scales, which allows you to select power ranges to deliver desired performance. All right, that's all true. I'm still waiting for the magic bullet that I have in mind. The, both of you are correct. What else? What do you get when you rev the hoot out of that thing and make all the noise you possibly can on takeoff? You get all, whatever, 201 or 270 or whatever. You get all the horsepower, so you get better takeoff. You get uh, shorter ground roll and better climb performance when you're using all the horses. So to me, that's the magic. When I take off in my Thorpe, that thing is off the ground by almost before I can like figure out if the oil pressure is under control. Uh, it's like I'm full throttle, yeah, oil pressure, okay, airspeed alive, whoa, airborne. Uh, and my 180 horse fixed pitch, my first T-18, wasn't quite as frisky. I had more time to think because full throttle in a fixed pitch airplane, any fixed pitch airplane is, what, 90% of the horsepower or something? It's not 100%. Only at redline, typically, uh, is it uh, 100%. So you, you get to do that, and then you get to throttle it back for less engine wear, less noise, less fuel consumption, and have a more comfortable ride. So yeah, I, all, all correct. Thank you. So but we, we need to get that across, right? We need to be able to, uh, to get that into the learner's mind. 
So, uh, and then to discuss the parts of it, it's not just the blue knob that changes the RPM gauge, there's stuff going on. So let's help them understand what that's about, the, uh, how the propeller works. These are two separate blades as opposed to one big chunk of aluminum that's twisted. Um, uh, explain that the governor and propeller work together, that the prop isn't doing any thinking, it's just obeying the governor and the governor is talking to the propeller via oil pressure. And then there's, and that moves a piston inside the hub of the propeller and that twists the blades, either more coarse or less coarse, depending on whether that particular thing is, uses pressure to get coarse or fine. Usually it's, in the smaller airplanes it defaults to flat pitch and it takes oil pressure to go um, uh, lower RPM. Uh, so, but they need to understand this. Uh, fairly thoroughly. So then is it a full feathering prop? Uh, like on some twins, oil pressure, am I in where I want to be? Yeah. So is it full feathering? Uh, and if so, why? What's the point of being full feathering? Typically it's going to be on a twin, but it, some singles have it. Uh, so what's the point of, let's, on a twin, what's the point of a full feathering propeller? Less drag. Yeah, you, you don't have to stomp on the rudder and crank it quite as hard and you get better performance if that engine fails. Uh, and then the question is, how do you unfeather it? So if you're going to go up and, and practice this and go full feather and go, wow, look, I don't have to use as much rudder. Now let's turn it back on. How do you do that? How does it do that? Some of them, it stores a charge and it pushes the piston. And so you got to know how it works for that airplane. Um, okay. How and why do adjust pitch for takeoff, initial climb, cruise climb? Etc. So uh, all the parameters around that need to be really carefully discussed on the ground because once you're flying, it's just too much happening. It's too much to absorb. I think it's like we're going to do this, and once we're at a safe altitude, we'll uh, RPM back to 2600, make a little less noise, go to cruise climb, then we'll level off and set the 2400. Right? Explain all that, uh, and then what to do before landing. At what point? Why do you want to be full forward? before landing, which is what? In case you need to go around, or actually in case you get low and you really need to goose it temporarily. But yeah, mainly it's to prepare for a go around. Uh, and when do you want to do that? Which is, uh, which is an interesting question. Because um, you don't necessarily want to redline when you're still kind of motoring in on the 45, making all that noise. Uh, it's just not necessary. But if it will prevent you from forgetting to do it on final, Maybe you should do it. So all that needs to be discussed in advance. Uh, it's, it's like doing a thumps check, uh, right? fuel, undercarriage, mixture, prop. So if you skip doing the prop while you're doing the initial pattern entry, are you going to remember later on? Are you going to remember put the gear down at the right, right? So you've got to work this out with the student, uh, the learner. Uh, as to uh, how to reason that out and, and establish a procedure that's gonna, that they're going to do every single time to make sure they never forget. Um, okay, pre-flight. A pre-flight on a constant speed prop is a tiny bit different. Mainly you're looking for what as opposed to a fixed pitch? Oil. Yeah, so I, got, I feel behind my propeller blade, feel if there's any wetness coming out, if those seals are starting to leak because... Since that thing is full of oil and controlling the, the propeller blades with oil pressure, that seal someday is going to start to leak and ooze and oil is going to come out and you're going to go, oh, look, I get to spend more money. Okay, pre-flight. Failure modes. 
How can a constant speed prop fail? So you either have to shout or use the, or use the mic. So uh, one thing it can do is overspeed. Mine did. We still don't know why, but we had enough things pulled apart, put stop at 2,700 RPM. It just went crazy. It made all this noise. I'm like, what, 2,800? How do you fix that? First of all, it's past red line. It's past the limitation. It may or may not be bad for the engine. Uh, but what do you do? I pulled the blue knob back. Nothing changed. Yeah, you're done, right? Throttle comes back. You've got to save that engine now before it throws a rod or something like that, right? So you got to pull that back, then advance carefully and obey the red line on the way up and be careful. So if that happens on initial climb, you've got a real problem, right? You have to go to zero power, and then you have to go, okay, how much power do I have? Uh, so on my airplane, when it did that, and I powered back, I was approaching. I still had about 2,000 feet AGL. Uh, and it, it's behaved right after that, and it's, it did that a couple more times, and I had all that work done, and now it's, it's behaving. Uh, but that can catch you by surprise. And you've got to fix it right away before the engine just self-destructs. Uh, although um, uh, some uh, mechanics will tell you, you know what, that engine's rated for 3,500 horsepower, so like, relax, but I, I don't know. <laughs> it's a red line. Red lines mean something, so let's obey the red lines. Uh, okay, any questions or comments on that? So my Mooney uh, was traditionally overboot. Uh, I'd take off and hit yeah. trip at 27, 27, 50 all the time. Yeah. And remember, that's adjustable. So once you, if you have a pattern of that, you can have your mechanic right adjust the governor, and now it, it runs pretty close to 2700, maybe 2680, and never red lines anymore. Momentarily. Momentarily, yeah. So that momentary is usually momentary not a problem. Is, you might see a lot. And that can be tweaked. Right, yeah. So but it, it's going to do it momentarily because the governor has to figure out, oh, I'm going too fast. And then it shoves pressure in and fixes the prop. So some of that depends on how fast you advance the throttle. If you go real slow, it'll just kind of sneak up. Sometimes you gotta, if you're doing a go around, you may not be able to go slowly. So it's just going to go, and then that momentary is usually okay. Good, good point. Okay. Uh, yeah. How about that? When you're 260 horse and you're used to 160, right? Your right foot's going to get a workout now. Uh, and so they need to know this in advance. Don't let it be a surprise on the first takeoff, right? This is all still in ground school. Uh, and um, hopefully they can reiterate to you what the left-turning tendencies are caused by. And then, you, you know, you want to emphasize it's going to be much, much more pronounced. you got more horsepower. you got the thing spinning faster, making more spiral with more horses behind it. There's just a lot going on. Uh, and so it wants to roll left. It wants to yaw left. And you need to be ready right rudder. Uh, yeah. Uh, usually, not always, but it's, it's heavier airplane generally. That's almost always, but it's usually heavier controls. 182s generally have heavier controls than 172s. Uh, so um, uh, they need to be prepared to use elevator trim maybe more than they're used to because the, these control pressures are going to get tiring faster. Um, Discuss rudder trim if it exists, and you can set that for takeoff so you have an easier time in the climb, but then 
when you level off, you're going to be flying like this until you do the fix with the rudder trim. Um, it, but then when you go, now you're flying and, you're, and you're, the rudder trim is centered and you're doing your approach and I need to go around, well now you don't have rudder trim helping you. So now you need right rudder even though on the takeoff 20 minutes before you didn't because you had it trimmed out. So this all has to be stuffed into their heads before you, before you go flying. Um, <clears throat> surprising amount of rudder pressure and the potential for a trim stall on the go-around. So what do we mean by that? Grab, grab a, raise a hand, grab a mic, and tell me what that is. On the trim stall, moonies are really bad because the whole tail is moving, right? So the entire elevator is moving yeah. at your trim. So you got a lot of authority there, and it's hard to over, overtake that if you've got a lot of trim set. Yeah. So that's really particular, but that's what you have. Your, that thing wants to just go like that. That. Right, exactly. Thank you. Yeah, so you're trimmed up because you're slowed down uh, on final, and then uh, you goose it, and you're used to your 172 pressures or something, where it's like, okay, I can hold this at uh, climb speed and then trim it out, but when you got 100 more horsepower than you're used to, what he said, it's like, whoa, and you have a heavier elevator, so you're trying to use the same pressure as before, this is not good, right? So they've got to be absolutely ready for that, that on a go-around, more right rudder or more right rudder, shove the dang thing <laughs> forward to maintain uh, proper climb attitude uh, and get around to trimming when you can. But make sure you, you know, do some push-ups or whatever, bicep curls with your left arm and be ready for that. Yeah. Thank you. Wait, i got to know your name. You're awesome out there. Uh, David, thank you. Um, one of the things that, you know, if you're 200 versus 201, but if you start really stepping it up, yeah. on a go-around, this is what I teach, this call order, there's no requirement to go full power either. It's just a simple go-around. Okay. You don't have to jam the throttle up in a high-performance airplane every time. Usually, you get it up to where you know where to climb. All you're doing is climbing away safely from the ground. Good. You're not flying a 152. Right. Where, yeah, thr full throttle is probably it in the summertime, right? But yeah. You don't always have to go full power, and I try to emphasize that. And right. I practice that at different power settings. And look, don't make this turn this into an emergency. Right. It's just a go around, and you got all the power in the world if you do it right. Perfect. Good. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you. Okay. Where? Who's speaking? No. I had the student who lose the tax drew in a 182, but in level flight, and she's about 90 pounds, and she was having an awful time trying to control the airplane going up into the stall. Yeah. And on the radio at that time we had flight service yet. Somebody had flight service come along and said, cut your power back, fly at 70 miles an hour, not 120, uh. and see what happens. At 70 miles an hour, it's fully controllable. Yeah. Okay. And no trouble whatsoever. So if it happens, it can happen level flight as well, if that horizontal tail, you must pull the 182. No story. So it, uh, that also happens yeah. in level flight. Okay, good. Thank you. Perfect. Great, thank you very much. Okay, uh, as usual, I'm gonna run out of time because I talk too much, but this is, I hope this is valuable for you. Okay, good. All right, manifold pressure. They've never seen that before, right? Like, what is that all about? So we get to teach them that and hopefully teach them that manifold pressure is the result of suction <laughs> that results in the leftover pressure in the um, intake uh, system intake manifolds, if you keep calling it manifold, that'll, that'll solidify that. 
So, uh, so here's a question. So uh, it, once we get to pre-flight, uh, we might have time to talk about it, but in case I forget. Um, so how would you pre-flight the manifold pressure gauge? Can you pre-flight the manifold pressure gauge? What should it say? We're at 1,000 feet here, let's say, and the altimeter setting is 3000, let's say. What should it say, sitting on the ground with nothing running? No. We're 1,000 feet up. 3000000 is the barometric pressure at sea level, and we're 1,000 feet up. The barometric pressure, the, the altimeter setting is the barometric pressure corrected for altitude. So it's, so you're, we're 1,000 feet up. Uh, 30 inches is 1,000 feet underground. So to say 29, uh, you know, within, they're, they're never that accurate when they're the analog ones. You're lucky if they're within half an inch. But pre-flight that and explain what that means. That's the pressure in there because that's the pressure everywhere. Now you start the engine and what happens? What are the cylinders doing? <laughs> right? They're sucking air in through the manifold. Through the, uh, manifold. And so, uh, so, uh, so you're going to be reading that suction now. But the gauge says pressure, so that's got to get sorted out. Okay. Um, so what will the manifold pressure read on the ground, etc.? Why is there a maximum uh, on a, on a non-turbo engine? There's not going to be. On a turbocharged engine, there's got to be a red line because that's what the engine is rated for, right? Manufacturer says it's a safe at 40 inches. Don't overboost, and if you do, pull it back right away because that's like, Engine's not designed for that. Um, okay, I got to skip some things. Uh, so, and you might want to talk about how the turbocharger works. Explain whether it's a manual or fixed uh, manual or automatic wastegate. That's a big deal. If it's manual, what do you got to do when you're throttled up for takeoff? Or, I'm sorry. If it's a fixed wastegate. What happens if you just jam full forward? What's the turbocharger going to do? Blast as hard as it can. So you're controlling it to redline. That's your job. If it's an automatic wastegate, it should stop at the redline. So now you're really just verifying it. You just shove it in, and it stops at uh, 40 inches, let's say. And uh, if it stays there, you're like, good. The automatic wastegate is working. OK. Oh, look, underboast. Um, all right, so here's a question for you. Uh, failure modes, example, you set manifold pressure and RPM in cruise. You make it all happy at, I don't know, 25, 24, or something like that. Uh, and your constant altitude. And your, uh, so in this case, you're turbocharged. So this question on the bottom, the example, is you're turbocharged. So you set manifold pressure, so you're turbocharged. So let's say it's 30 and 24. Uh, and you're in cruise, constant altitude, and you notice that the manifold pressure is slowly decreasing. You could fix it by advancing the throttle, but it kind of keeps happening. So you keep throttling in, and you keep going back up to 30 inches, and then you look back a minute later, and it's decreasing again. And you got this thing nice and tight. It's not vibrating out. Uh, what's wrong with this picture? You got a leak somewhere, which could be at the outlet of the turbocharger, which is very, very hot gas, which means 
fire may be imminent, that this may be an emergency. This may call for immediate landing, throttle back uh, as much as is safe to do so, uh, in order to cool things down as much as you can. Um, so learn about and teach these failure modes and what to watch for. That's why I'm doing this, because all this was new to me. So this is, okay, I like this. Um, so, and I think this PowerPoint can be accessed. We'll have to wait till Loretta or Karen can verify that. But, um, okay, so in these, a lot of these engines, the power changes more slowly than you may be used to, even if you try to move it because of the harmonic, harmonic damper, which is at the end of, a, of the crankshaft, and that's to absorb uh, torsional loads so it doesn't... Um, resonate itself to death, uh, but that slows down your, your RPM changes sometimes. It may not be, respond as fast as you think it should. You got to know that about that airplane. Okay, we're going to keep moving here. So engine temperatures and cooling. So cowl flaps, they've never seen cowl flaps before. Wow, what are those about? Yeah, cool, right. So, yeah, high throttle when you're at relatively low airspeed and high power, you open the flaps to let a lot more cooling air flow. And then when you're at altitude, why close them? Uh, yeah, to keep it warm and go faster. You can, in some airplanes, you can gain 10 or 15 knots. Uh, actually, in the, one of the Moonies I fly, that's turbocharged. You, uh, when they finally remember to close the cow flaps, I'm sitting there with the smug instructor face. You know, all right, when's the guy going to get around to this? We go, oh, why are we? He's like, why are we going so slow? And I'm like, hmm. And he go, oh, cow flaps. And you hear the change, and then wait for the airspeed to build up, and you, you pick up another 10 knots. Um, okay. Uh, weight and balance could be more complicated. You got more stations to deal with. Uh, you may have multiple fuel tanks with multiple uh, uh, arms. Uh, so you got to babysit your uh, center of gravity more carefully. Um, and it's easier in the in the bigger airplanes to be aft. It's you can't get a 100, 150 aft unless you physically get out of the seat and go hang out in the baggage compartment. But uh, but these bigger airplanes where you could put a ton of baggage back oh, way 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 back there, right? And uh, take a take a 210 and put a 120 pounds of baggage or whatever it's allowed over there and light, you know, you get down to low fuel, you may be aft. So you got to explain, uh, you know, go through some more examples for weight and balance. Uh, oxygen. Oxygen is good. So if there's an oxygen system in the airplane, we've got to talk about that. Um, yeah, what happens if it fails? Uh, how would you know? That's a tough one. If you're getting hypoxic, you're getting hypoxic. Uh, and life is good, right? <laughs> so uh, so we, we, that needs to be discussed. Uh, I remember a time I was at, I think, 10.5. I, I, like I can spend all day at 12.5 now. I don't know, 40 years ago, for some reason, I was at 10.5 bringing an RV4 I had just bought in Florida up uh, this way. And I was over Arkansas, or, or sorry, the panhandle of Florida, <coughs> uh, westbound, northwest bound. And I'm sitting in this airplane, and I don't know why I'm there. I'm just like this, this beautiful view. Like, there's a lot of water over there. That's the Gulf. I know how to fly. This is an airplane. I get it. And... I don't know why I'm there. 
And when that finally occurred to me, and I thought, okay, this isn't good. Maybe this is a sign of um, euphoria. I think of the euphoria, you know, I've never done the drug, but it should be more like, whoa, dude. But it's not. In this case, it might have just been, everything's fine, and I, I just don't know what I'm here. I'm like, I don't know. So I thought, okay, well, uh, there's probably something I should do about this because I'd like to know why I'm here. Uh, okay, hypoxia, maybe I should descend. I get down to 8,500 feet and I'm fine. So fortunately, I woke myself up. But, uh, but we need to talk about that because if they're going to go to oxygen altitudes and the oxygen system fails or runs out, uh, that's important to discuss. Okay, airspeeds. Obviously, we have to go very, very carefully through uh, all these airspeeds uh, from VNE all the way down to stall speed. Um, they need to know glide speed. Um, let's see. Uh, a v, a, so maneuvering speed changes, as you know, with gross weight. And in a high-performance airplane, you usually hold a lot of fuel, which means your gross weight is going to change over the three-hour or four-hour flight. Um, in fact, Ron, you flew up in your Bonanza, was it, from Florida to here in one hop? Aerial, except for aerial refueling, so you burn, you know, 300 pounds of fuel or something. Aerial defuel. Actually, you burned you burned $4,000 worth of fuel. Then forget the weight. <laughs> but uh, right, so that CG can change a lot during the course of a flight, and therefore maneuvering speed. In case you run into moderate or greater turbulence, you want to know about that. Um, Glide speed also uh, changes with weight, and the, the newer airplanes tell you about that at different weights, so you're going to have different glide speeds. Uh, and, and then, of course, talk about the pattern speeds, which are going to be significantly different than in their 152. Uh, and, and how to take care of the engine while doing that. All right, you got, you got this massive bunch of horses up there with, uh, with cylinders that need to be uh, taken care of. Take off and landing tables under different conditions. Take off abort parameters and procedures and how to abort a takeoff safely. When? What are you looking for? Um, uh, most of the, anything that's got a controllable prop is going to have a fuel flow gauge, a fuel flow, right, fuel pressure and or fuel flow. So that's going to be part of your scan when you start your takeoff roll to be sure that's in the in a proper range. Um, wow, this is a lot, <laughs> right? So uh, this is going to take more than half an hour. Yeah. Okay. Power loss emergencies, depending on where they happen. So there's going to be a a, a checklist with uh with that information somewhere in your um, AFM. And if you lose power uh, out there somewhere and it's not coming back and you're going to land, you know, when do you want to put the gear down? Do you ever want to put the gear down? When would you not want to put the gear down if you're landing off airport? Gentleman? Uh, David? The uh, gentleman back there. I saw that hand first, yeah. Wild willies. Uh, I would assume if you're going to land on water. Water, yeah. Water wants to be up. Right? What else? Trees, uh, yeah. If you're going to smack into trees, I don't know that the gear is going to help you. Just a soft field or a or grassy field, you don't know how soft it is. If it's soft, it catches your gear, you flip over, you might be better off doing a belly landing. The airplane's going to get hurt anyway. And the airplane, 
When, when the engine quits, the airplane is a box that's there to save your life. That's all it is. It's no longer an airplane. It's no longer yours. Sacrifice the airplane, get out of the airplane, and walk away after you land. And that may need to gear up landing. Uh, sorry? That's why we have insurance. Exactly right. Correct. Right, right. Um, okay. The questions or comments? I still have a, like 800 more slides. <laughs> Um, going back to the water thing, if you're at night and there's not much visibility to the ground, do you think, like if there's lakes nearby, you get the little light kind of glinting off from the moon or whatever, so you can actually see the surface of the water, is that, is that maybe your best option? I, well, maybe, and I, I don't know how to answer that. That's a really good question. I, if it's otherwise forested, probably, but I, water landings scare me. I know how to swim, but on the other hand, you could have your head whacked, and it doesn't matter if you know how to swim. Uh, and if the thing flips over, getting out can be an issue. I, there's a lot going on there. So that's, that's also worth discussing. I, I don't have a yes or no answer, but it's worth the discussion. Well, the instructor said it's simple. Just don't land where it's dark. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Go where there's lights. Okay. Or, actually, actually I, what I teach is to land... Uh, near lights but not into the light because the lights are lights in buildings and poles and stuff but if you land near that's probably somebody probably lives there and will hear it and call for help so uh land near lights but not into lights um okay autopilot this may be the first time they've seen an autopilot what the heck is that and it's uh yeah so uh how many axes is it it might just be roll it might be two axes it might be three uh, what kind of pre-takeoff checks are involved? How do you use it? I mean, the, the autopilot's a big deal. What does it couple to? Right, that can go on for a while. Uh, autopilot failure modes, how to turn it off. How, what, what are the two or three or four ways to kill it in case it runs away? Um, if, it's, if you have electric trim, what happens if there's a uh, trim runaway? My airplane failed in full nose-up mode. Because a little pin broke in a, in a universal joint. So I, I took off thinking I was in trim. And I'm like, why is the nose going so high? And I throw the stick forward. And I try trimming down. And I'm like, why am I still using forward pressure? OK, I guess I'm just going to fly back to the runway and get this thing fixed. But you got to know how to do that. And you got to be ready for that much pressure in a, in a, in a 182 or Bonanza or something like that. Okay, uh, retract. <laughs> I got like five minutes left. So uh, how how the the retract? So now we're moving on to complex. Obviously, I guess we already were. Uh, so how it works in that airplane is it electric, hydraulic? Are you lucky enough to have a Mooney uh, with the <coughs> Johnson bar? And are you strong enough to operate it? That thing takes some. Ar I can't do it with my left hand. Uh, if I'm yeah, no no, I'm right-handed, and if, if it's I'd have to let go of the wheel and get both hands on it. Um, normal procedures and so on, uh, including when you uh, take off and before you, uh, yeah, <laughs> take off, initial climb, and before you retract, you really should step on the brakes momentarily because, to stop the wheels from spinning, because why? Yeah, because they get, they get, the diameter goes up when they're spinning, right? It's spinning rubber out and it, they can get stuck. Um, okay, uh, so what ha this can be tricky. What happens at night 
pipers are maddening about this because if you turn on the nav lights in a piper, all the lights interior inside go dim, which is which is interesting. <laughs> so that's that's got to be known. So you probably try to put the gear down and you're waiting for green lights and there are no lights. Uh, if it's during the day, if you're running nav lights during the day, like I do every time. Uh, so uh, make sure they understand all that. The, very important, the emergency gear extension procedures. The fellow I talked to you about that I met last night, and the, he had the half-hour checkout in a complex. Dad asked son, did he discuss the uh, emergency gear extension mechanism with you? I think you know what the answer was. <laughs> he did not. So uh, make sure they understand that. If it's uh, an airplane where you can safely uh, use the uh, manual extension in flight, uh, manual extension, yeah, and then, uh, and then retract it again, do it. Not all our planes let you do it. I was, I was a debonair recently, and the guy said, sure, all we got, the manual says do this, here's the steps, to pull the circuit breaker, do all this stuff, crank, 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 crank. Okay, gear down and locked. I got all the indications. Everybody's happy. Okay, now use the procedure to bring it back up, push the circuit breaker in, stow the handle, do all the right stuff. Gear comes back up. You cannot do that in an arrow, right? An arrow, if you use the emergency extension, the gear is, you're, now a, you're now a warrior or an archer. And you're landing, a mechanic has to put it up on jacks and do mechanic things. So make sure it, you can do it in the airplane you're in, and if it's allowed... Do it. Give them the practice of doing the emergency extension. Okay, other things about gear that you can think about. All right, flight. In one minute, we're going to do the, the flight parts of it. Was there a question? Okay. So uh, differences between this aircraft, the pre-flight, differences between this aircraft and training aircraft, um, whatever they may be, constant speed prop, check for leaks. Is there anti-icing or de-icing equipment on this thing? Uh, every airplane, every normally aspirated airplane has an anti-icing feature. What's that called? It's a little black knob. A pito, actually, pitot heat. And it's not everyone. Some have pitot heat, but everyone has what? It's a knob. You pull it. A carburetor heat, right? Okay, good. So this, so your this airplane may have more involved stuff on the wings or the prop. Uh, Pre-flighting the landing gear. Right? There's more than just brakes to look at. There's that whole big well up there where you want to check for cracks and uh, leaks and things. Um, speed brakes, if they exist. The, one of the Moonies I instruct with, and I, I love that. Speed brakes are a gift from God, I'm telling you. So I love speed brakes. Uh, the oxygen system, if it's there. Um, flight deck management. You have, so, yeah. Rock? <laughs> so flight deck management with all this extra stuff here and like being able to know where the manifold pressure and RPM and fuel flow, there's just, it's a much more complicated uh, cockpit than it used to be. Alternate static. Uh, if it's an injected engine, uh, uh, correction, uh, yeah, fuel injected, this going to have alternate air. What does that mean? It's not heated air like carburetor heat, but it's a different source of air. Um, okay, audio panel may be more complex. Hot starts, do you use the, uh, the boost pump uh, for takeoffs and landings, or is it just there for high altitude? Um, that's not cavitation. What's it called where the fuel gets, uh, air bubbles get stuck? Vapor lock, thank you. I always call it cavitation. Vapor lock. 
so, you know, if someone's used to flying a, a Warrior or a little uh, 140, that the fuel, the electric fuel pump is on for all takeoffs and landings because it works in parallel with the mechanical fuel pump. So you have fuel flow even if the mechanical one fails. Uh, other engines, uh, the uh, Mooney and some of the bigger Cessnas, if you turn on the boost pump um, for um, uh, for takeoff and climb, the engine will stop. So you've got to know precisely how to use it and when um, in that airplane. And then also talk about hot starts. That's particularly for injected engines. Engine management. <laughs> See why this takes so much ground? <laughs> Right? And there's just a lot going on. So you may have a complex indicator like this. Um, and you get, if it's turbocharged, you get to talk about turbine inlet temperature and compressor discharge temperature. Oh my gosh, how do you lean it? Do you lean to EGT? Do you lean to TIT? So this is, there's a bunch of stuff going on. Takeoffs and climbs. Then when you get to flying, you want to make sure you go through all the, uh, a lot of different um, flying scenarios. Basic maneuvers, steep turns, slow flights, stalls, emergency procedures, approach and landing, uh, after landing, securing the airplane. Uh, so I, I hope you teach this way if you have a, anything with a retractable gear or actually anything because someday they'll be flying a retractable gear airplane. And I know some DPE is that if you're on the runway and you reach up to change a frequency or with the flaps, you just failed, which I think is correct. Your hand stays on the throttle, your other hand stays on the wheel, you slow the thing down, get off the runway, and stop. Now, look at your hand, put it on the flap lever, put the flap lever up, let your hand go, right? Raise the flaps, not the gear. Am I telling the truth? <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so then do your after landing checklist. Uh, if you're turbocharged, you need to teach them about the cool down, like three to five minutes, whatever the manual says, uh, and make sure you obey that so you don't um, uh, hurt your turbocharger and cost $15,000. Cow flaps, whatever you're supposed to do there.